y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. Fun counter guy, thanks for stopping by. The sound you hear is that of musicologist Dave Robinson pumping his player piano so that it can play a tune recorded via holes in paper by the great Fat Swaller. How that works, we'll get to in a bit, but first, Mr. Robinson tells us about his passion and method for collecting jazz recordings, which fill his home, along with bottle caps, woodpeckers, and a few other random items just outside of Washington, D.C. Having the recording on a particular format Mm -hmm. where some people do care, do you care? No, I'm not one of these hardcore 78 collectors that pursues the original issues. I just want the music and I'm not so much a collector as an archivist. And what I mean by that is that I've always approached my gathering from an archivist's standpoint. I love all forms of jazz, but my first passion is traditional jazz or trad jazz, what used to be called Dixieland, but we're trying to get away from that word these days. I notice that when I think Dixieland jazz, I think of the 50s revival jazz more than the original stuff. Yeah, uh, it's got that connotation. It has a, a zillion connotations. I, w- I won't go into that whole soapbox speech, oh, but okay. <laughs> I'm on a campaign to lose that word. So I, I call it traditional jazz or trad jazz. That term has been gaining traction in recent years, and it's a much better alternative. And what it means is the, uh, the New Orleans way of playing, uh, collective improvisation. That's the sound that uh, first took hold of me as a youngster. And my listening interests have expanded to include all forms of jazz. But my first passion is is trad jazz as a player and as a collector and as a broadcaster and as an educator. Yeah, I collect all formats. And what I'm trying to do is document as completely as possible the whole trad jazz genre. So I've got lots of records downstairs that I think are terrible. (laughs) Okay. But they're trad jazz. And I'm not imposing my own preferences and tastes on my collecting. I'm just trying to assemble what I hope is the world's most comprehensive collection or archive of trad jazz, and I hope to eventually turn it over to a university as part of a systematic course of study for trad jazz. So I've, I've always collected with that goal in mind, so it's not just my own favorite records. <laughs> As far as getting the most exhaustive jazz collection, how would you know? (laughs) (laughs) There are certainly larger jazz collections than mine, but not concentrated on trad jazz. I'm familiar enough in the jazz community that I I think mine is the most comprehensive collection of that genre. Mm. It's not the best jazz collection, it's not the most valuable jazz collection, it's not the biggest jazz collection, but I think it's the most comprehensive for all the various permutations of collective improvisation, New Orleans-style jazz and its outgrowths. ¶¶ 
how did you first discover Trad Jazz? Oh, well, through records that my dad had. He, he had just the usual smattering of everything. And some Trad Jazz was in there. And some swing, big band swing, Benny Goodman, Count Basie. Uh, Spike Jones, which is a collecting passion of mine to this day. Mm -hmm. That's not exactly jazz, but it's something he had that, that I still uh, adhere to. And he, he had an LP by Joe Fingers Carr playing ragtime piano that I just loved to death. by uh, Pee Wee Hunt. <laughs> and I just took to those, and because of my interest in that, uh, at Christmas time, LPs would start to appear under the tree, and I'd always, first thing I'd look for under the tree at Christmas time was, was an LP-shaped right. <laughs> package. Say, <So>, yes! <laughs> <laughs> So uh, it grew from there, and it's just a, a sound that hooked me. I didn't hear trad jazz live, I guess, until um, I was uh, about 17, and an ad appeared in the paper for a local trad jazz band playing at a place called the Bratwurst House. And so my, my mom and dad took me there and heard it live for the first time, and boy, I was really hooked then. When I got out of college, I formed a band and we played at the Bratwurst House every Tuesday night for six years. <laughs> so that was my apprenticeship into playing the music. Now the mood of our story changes fast. Hiccup is back on his ranch at last. Well, here I am. I better get dressed. I got a heavy date and want to look my best. I'll take a quick shower and smell like a flower. That was a mighty quick shower. Let's talk about Spike Jones. <laughs> okay. To the uninitiated, who was Spike Jones? His heyday was the 40s and kind of into the 50s. Uh, he was a musical genius and, and a humorist, a satirist. He was sort of the Weird Al Yankovic of his day. Yeah. <laughs> and it's where people like Weird Al Yankovic come from. Right. Uh, and uh, he actually used sort of a, a cornball trad jazz format for a lot of what he did. Mm -hmm. But it was all hand up and crazy and... And he would satirize classical music and pop music of the day. Came up with these incredible arrangements. Very, very difficult to play. He had, he had to have the top musical talent in his group called the City Slickers to pull off this stuff because it's split-second timing and, and just a lot of technical proficiency required. So it's, he later in the 50s, he had a, a TV program, a live TV program. So now they had to not only be on top of their game, but, but there was no second takes. Right. So, and everything was live on the air. They, they even had a, an electrician die during one of the programs backstage. And, and the, uh, the stage managers doing all the props and everything had to step around the, the guy to finish the show. <laughs> it was live. Wow. <laughs> some people may know some of Spike Jones' songs, like for historical reasons, maybe. Like some of the propaganda songs he did, like well, the thing, the initial thing that put him on the map was was called Der Führer's Face. Right. When the Führer says he is the master race, we heil, heil, right in the Führer's face. One of my favorite tracks is he with uh, Homer and Jethro. 
Oh yeah. Yeah, they did a send up yeah. of uh what's Pagliacci. That's the one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. All at once, there's a fat guy in a clown suit. Tain't Halloween, that's for sure. Then this here feller, this punchy neller, begins to beller like we all was deep. A lot of his humor was kind of politically incorrect, too. You uh, couldn't yeah. get away with it, probably, today. Today, it's still okay to make fun of Germans and maybe some of their ethnicities, but yeah. uh, he has the song, uh, You're a Sat, Mr. Jap. Yes. Which would not fly today. I will say he never parodied African-Americans mm. that, that I can think of. So, But sure, um, Chinese mule train, <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> things like that would raise some eyebrows today. I know a big part of your existence is try to educate people about jazz. Mm -hmm. How do you go about doing that? Well, I teach young people at George Mason University. I direct a trad jazz ensemble there. And for uh, 29 years now, I've been directing an area-wide youth group called the Capital Focus Jazz Band, which is, uh, by audition, I'm able to take the best players that we can find mm -hmm. from local high schools and colleges all over the D.C. area. That group rehearses uh, twice a month, records every year, and we, I take them out on road trips, sometimes to Europe, Canada, did a Caribbean cruise. Very active program, and I'm, I'm very happy that a few of my graduates have gone on to form their own trad jazz bands in New York City, for instance, and, and have become uh, part of the trad jazz scene. Now, these high school students, do they come with some knowledge of trad jazz before they join up with you? Usually not. A, a few have. So what's the attraction to them? I'm curious. Well, um, I pay them for their gigs <laughs> locally. There you go. <laughs> I mean, most youth jazz programs, students have to pay to be in it. Mm -hmm. This one, they don't have to pay, and we pay them. But I'm able to do that because they're good enough that I'm able to get them jobs around town with clients that that will pay so they they work sort of semi-professionally another thing i've done in the uh, education arena is i've recently published a traditional jazz curriculum kit which is something that took me many years to produce and i did it under grant funding uh, national endowment for the arts and a lot of uh, foundations and I've been able to distribute 10,000 of these across the country. I'm hoping that that will make a little bit of a dent out there because these earlier forms of jazz are, are still relevant today and, and valid means of creative expression but uh, for some reason the the jazz education world is uh, is more focused on later styles and these well, earlier styles have kind of fallen off the radar screen. We'll talk about that. Why do you think that is? Because it's not uncommon to meet someone who's maybe a Coltrane fan or Miles Davis, yeah. but it's it's a lot uncommon to, to run into somebody who's a big spider back or somebody. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think just with the passage of time, we've had succeeding generations of jazz educators who are less and less in touch with the earlier sounds. 
I think that the the attitude towards the earlier sounds is better now than it used to be. I, I think there's more openness toward it. There's still unfamiliarity, but there's not the bias against it that mm. there used to be. I remember my my college jazz instructor, a couple of things he said that I'll never forget. One, one he, he used the D word, you know, and he said, Dixieland isn't jazz, it's just Dixieland. Oh, man. And the other thing he said is, well, but you should, yeah, you should check out where we've been in order to better appreciate where we are. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, okay, you know, just familiarize yourself with those early baby steps just mm -hmm. so, you know, you can appreciate better that we're so much better yep. than that. The masterpieces that Louis Armstrong and Sidney Bechet and Jelly Roll Morton and Dick Spiderbeck and Jack Teagarden and all those giants laid down for us still speak today. Do you know off the top of your head if, if people like, like I mentioned, Miles Davis and Coltrane and all those guys, did they have an appreciation for traditional jazz? Yes and yes. There's a quote attributed to Miles Davis uh, where he used the D word, but this was like back in, you know, 50s or 60s when the, 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 the word Dixieland was, was the common word for this music. And he said, this probably isn't word for word, but it's pretty close. He said something like, uh, I, I hate people who put down Dixieland. It just shows how stupid they are. Wow. <laughs> so there's that. And in John Coltrane's instance, he was uh, very much influenced by Sidney Bechet. was an early pioneer of the soprano sax and Coltrane took up the soprano as his second main instrument I guess and he was influenced by what Sidney did and he did that blues to Bechet you know mm -hmm. to pay tribute to him. jazz world it just seems like uh, it's always got to be hip and new and uh, I mean I've seen reviewers knock some terrific jazz recordings in print that, that weren't even trad jazz but were like in a hard bop style just because well it's not something new and innovative it's mm -hmm. you know it's the Cannonball Adderley style we've been there done that you know let's get off of that that's that's so ridiculous. I mean, we 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 don't do that in classical music. We don't say, you know, Bach and Beethoven are hundreds of years old, so they've got nothing to say to us today. Right. That their music doesn't reflect the complex reality in which we live today. You know, it's it's so self-serving. It's a language, and you can speak eloquently in any language. And to throw away what happened just because of the passage of time, what happened in the early days of jazz. Is, uh, is a huge mistake. So you also collect piano rolls. And if you don't mind explaining to folks who may not know what a 
piano roll is? Sure. Yeah, a piano roll is a, a roll of paper you insert into a, a player piano, uh, which is a piano specially constructed to play itself. And the roll has perforations in it, and it's sort of like the, the binary code, the zeros and ones of the digital world today. The holes pass over a, a tracker bar, and you're either pumping pedals to create suction, or the piano is uh, electronically operated and it creates its own suction. But either way, there's, uh, there's a, a suction coming through this tracker bar, and across this tracker bar you've got a hole for each note, each, each of the 88 notes on a piano. And as the paper passes over the tracker bar, the holes in the paper pass over the holes in the tracker bar, let the air in, the, the suction lets the air in, that activates that note for as long as that hole lasts over the right. hole in the tracker bar. So it's something that just captivated me sure. as a youngster. Uh, my uncle, uh, I was fascinated with my uncle's player piano, and then my dad got one for the family. And now I've inherited, the, the one that my dad had kind of uh, gave up the ghost after a few years. He still has it in his basement, but it's, uh, it's in bad shape. But my uncle had his refurbished, and my uncle passed away and I inherited his player piano, so that's the one that sitting over there. sits over there, and I inherited his collection, and I've added to it considerably since then. Can you talk about how they are constructed, like how they are basically kind of like recordings? Yeah, so there's two ways that they were put together. One way is they had what they called recording pianos in the day, and they would have known name pianists come in and play something live and this recording piano would actually somehow translate what they played into the strikes necessary on a paper roll to reproduce exactly what they played. So these are what are called hand-played rolls. You put one of these on and it's like Jelly Roll Morton or you know, Fats Waller is sitting at your piano playing for you. <laughs> Especially the fancy ones called the, the reproducing pianos, which have extra holes on the sides of the paper that, that control the dynamics, the foot pedal and, and the loud, you know, loud and soft and so forth. The other way is you had arrangers like uh, J. Lawrence Cook, one of the most prominent ones for the QRS company, uh, who would sit down and, uh, and actually take sheet music or take their own arrangements of sheet music and hand cut <laughs> these were actually punched the notes one at a time by hand with a with a, like a hammer and an awl or something wow and into a master roll piece of paper and uh, that's very tedious and time consuming and a lot of the hand played rolls were then enhanced they would go back and add you know additional notes so that the piano plays more forcefully. It's like two people playing. This is an original Cow Cow Davenport piano roll from 1925 in beautiful condition on the vocal style label. And it's a tune called He Show Don't Mean No Harm, parentheses blues. Okay. <laughs>
that's, that was great. That's the real stuff. It's I mean, almost like l- watching ghosts play yeah, the piano exactly. too. Scott Joplin was he ever recorded on the piano rolls? Yes, I have one or two of those recuts, not originals. And in fact, one of his rags uh, only exists as a piano roll. It was never published really in his day yeah silver swan rag i think is the name of it i think just one role was discovered like in the 70s or something and nobody knew of that composition before So, in your opinion, what is your favorite jazz recording? Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> Just one. No, I'm kidding. But uh, what are some that 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 come to mind? Like the ones you want played at your funeral? <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! I mean, I'm there's just so many great things. As far as you know, some of the earliest seminal records. I'm I'm partial to the Louis Armstrong Hot Fives. One of the top Hot Five recordings is Potato Head Blues. For Jelly Roll Morton, Black Bottom Stomp is certainly one of the top ones. And then there's, you know, Jazz Battle by Jabbo Smith. Tommy Ladnier and Sidney Bechet. Okay, so you also collect a bass saxophone? Yeah, okay. I, well, bass saxophone recordings. Oh, okay. I, okay. I, I do have one bass sax, okay. which is that right there. Right. Uh, it's an old one, and uh, it's. Uh, I'm not a saxophonist, but uh, it'll be a retirement project to someday be able to mm-hmm. play something on that. It's just a, a sound that I really love. Just the gruffness of the sound, the, the timbre of the sound. It's just a, a beautiful, uh, low-range, expressive voice. Okay. <laughs> and, of course, Adrian Rolini was the, the master of the bass sax in the 20s. I used to do radio programs and just on a lark I was searching for a theme many, many, many years ago and decided, uh, I think I have some recordings with those big giant saxophones let me <laughs> put some of those together see how many players i can find in my collection make a show out of it and uh and just putting that show together i realized how much i really loved that sound then i did another show and put more players together and pretty soon i started documenting you know so I, i'm sort of writing a discography i don't know that it'll ever see the light of day but 
I've been working on it for many years. Uh, of all the bass sax recordings, and I've been assembling all that I can find. And it used to be a rarity, so I would see I would seek out specific records, you know. And uh, it was the thrill of the hunt too. But these days, uh, bass sax and even contrabass sax, they've just exploded on the scene. Hmm. And they're they're all over the place now. It's not a rarity anymore, so I can't even keep up with it now. So you still collect even modern recordings of it? Sure, yeah. yeah. So you also collect bottle caps. Yeah. It's a silly passion of mine that I started when I was five years old, mm -hmm. <laughs> and wow. I just never outgrew it. I mean, right off the top here, I see some in Arabic, I see some in Chinese, yeah. uh, I see a Bix Biderbeck one. Wow. That's actually one that my brother put out. He does homebrew. He put out a, a Bix beer. <laughs> really? <laughs> With a custom cap, yeah. What's the, the appeal? <laughs> I, I mean, I know as a child, well, excuse me, as a child I used to collect them, because to me they're almost like, like little treasures, you know, especially when you find them on the ground. And, well, exactly. And they... That's that's how it started when okay. I was five years old. Family used to take picnics at uh, picnic grounds, and I would go around and pick up the caps from under the tables. And I don't know what drew me to them. It's just, uh, they're small and round and easy to find, and I just have the collecting bug, and that was its first manifestation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, never outgrew it and my brother collects them too he got that bug from me and and you you're not the only ones obviously besides your brother I mean... no it's big stuff now you go on the on ebay you'll see tons and tons really? of bottle caps going for incredible prices so what's the honus wagner of bottle caps <laughs> <laughs> there's a, a series put out by goldenrod beer in the 30s that was part of a game and they had comic book characters on them uh, from the Cats and Jammer Kids. They put out a series of uh, six or six or eight. It, it was part of a game. You tried to complete the set. Well, two of them were ultra rare. Uh, called, on purpose? Yes, on purpose. So, uh, I mean, it's they're rare to find any of them now, but I do have all but those two crazy rare ones. Uh, they were called the Inspector and uh, the director, I think, are the two rare ones. But there's Boggles, Fritz, Hans, Mama, the Captain, and the Prince. So there's six of them. And, and then if I ever find the director and the inspector, wow. <laughs> I'm going to be a happy guy. Like, how much did the, the director and the inspector go for? I don't know, but it would be, I mean, bottle caps are going for amazing prices on right. eBay these days. So. Hear him picking out a melody, peck, peck, pecking at the same old tree. He's as happy as a bumblebee all day long. So you also collect woodpeckers? Yes, well, crested woodpeckers, okay. which is the, the pileated woodpecker and the um, probably extinct ivory-billed woodpecker. And there are other crested woodpeckers in other countries. And, uh, now, are these um, taxidermy ones you collect? No, or? no, no, no. Okay. <laughs> no, just uh, photos, articles, pictures, models, anything depicting a pileated or an ivory build or, or a, another crested woodpecker. Mm -hmm. And I've put them all in this. This is our 
guest bedroom, so this is our woodpecker room. And I always <laughs> joke when we have guests that uh, hope the woodpeckers don't keep you up at night with their hammering. <laughs> <laughs> the ivory build requires large tracts of sort of swamp forest in the south. There's not enough remaining to sustain the populations. It's all been uh, paved over or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's there's some of that habitat left, but just not really enough to sustain ivory bills. Although some ornithologists are hopeful. There was a sighting in 20, 2004, I guess it, it's been a while. A sighting that was pretty believable, but without hard photographic evidence. There was a very, very fuzzy video that uh, is uh, controversial. Some scientists think, yes, that's an ivory bill, and some don't. Uh, but it was some real bird experts that, that saw it and reported it. And since then, there have been a smattering of other sightings reported, but it's just, it's elusive. It's uh, never been able to get a, a real good photo or video that nobody can dispute. So it's kind of the, the mysterious grail bird of the, <laughs> of the birding world. Nobody knows for sure if they're extinct, but uh, it's getting a little less hopeful as the years go right. on and we don't have hard evidence. But it was big news, and yeah, there we go. Rediscovered in the big woods of Arkansas, 2004. That was that was the big announcement, and it got the whole the whole scientific world excited. But uh, follow-ups just didn't produce what needed to be <laughs> produced to convince the world. Let's all sing like the birdies sing. Tweet, 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 tweet. Let's all sing like the birdies sing. Sweet, 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 Well, that's all for now. I want to thank Mr. Robinson for letting us into his home and around his collection. And if you'd like to reach out to Dave and tell him about the ivory build woodpecker you think you've seen out behind your house or whatever else, you can reach him at jazzteacher at wap.org. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram using the name spuncounterguy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. your time from the birds now you know all the words sweet sweet sweet